people are always really afraid of the word decolonization and I just say decolonization just means hearing another story and then changing your mind. We've been decolonized a lot because we now, every Canadian knows the, the story and the history of the residential schools. So it's not something to, that's really scary. Welcome to the Ending Poverty Together podcast. I'm Eric. And I'm Shalane. We are here to discuss big questions about poverty in bite-sized ways. Eric, we often enter into these conversations feeling like frontline learners, and today may be the most deeply I have ever felt just the need and the desire to learn and to understand. Yeah, today we're going to be talking about a topic that has really far too long been unaddressed or underaddressed in Canada, and I'm hopeful that we can share some new understandings with our listeners today. And I really can't think of a more gracious individual to walk with us on this journey than our guest today. It is a joy and honor to have Dr. Cheryl Bear from Natle Waten First Nation joining us. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you for your gracious welcome. Yeah, Cheryl, I'm, I'm wondering if we could start with you sharing actually about your introduction. Listeners may have noticed that I didn't include that you are a pastor author, singer, songwriter, uh, which are all true, but not how you asked us to introduce you. Um, Would you be able to start by helping us understand why that is? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, Yeah, whenever uh, whenever we introduce ourselves, or Indigenous folks um, across Canada and the U.S., when we introduce ourselves, the first thing that that we say, the most important thing that we say is where we're from. Mm. And when we're meeting one another, we don't ask the question, uh, what do you do? We ask, where are you from? Because we are identified by land. Land is so important to us. And so when I meet a Native person, and then I say, where are you from? And so, for example, someone says, oh, I'm from Kainai, which used to be called the Blood Reserve in Lethbridge. Mm. Then right away I know, oh, yeah, you guys used to be called Blackfoot. And then I know a little bit about their people and I know a little bit about them. That's, uh, that's very important to us. Land is, yeah. land is everything. One of my elders, the late uh, elders, Cecile Ketlow, she said, it's, all, it's, it's about the land. It's always about the land. Mm. Yeah, so I, always, I start off in my language as well. And, of course, one of the things we used to say was, you know, I lost my language or, um, you know, we're losing our language. But mm. that puts the, one of my elders actually was, was sharing one time, so I stopped using those terminologies because she said, we didn't lose our language. That's kind of saying like, oh, like I was absent-minded and, mm. and, I, and I just forgot it someplace or I just mm. misplaced it. She said, that's putting the onus on us. But actually, language is so important and it wasn't us that lost it. It was, it was a government policy that was that stole it from us and so uh so i when i introduce myself i say uh and that means i'm cheryl bear i'm from the beautiful village of natlewaten and i'm from the bear clan and you touched on a couple things already cheryl that we hope to come back to a little bit further into the podcast about things that were stolen from you like like your language I think if you have listened to the, any of the podcasts we've done and just from the interaction that we've had prior to this, one of the questions that we like to ask every guest is to finish the sentence, poverty is. And so I'm wondering if we could start there and then uh, we would just really love to explore some of the Indigenous perspective on the issue of poverty in Canada. 
Well, I guess on a on a very um, personal level, poverty is when your son comes home from a walk in the rain and he has he was in a, a little umbrella stroller and he was wearing some little running shoes but it was really rainy and so he came back home with from a simple trip to the grocery store he came back home with very very wet and very very cold feet and just the despair of taking that those shoes off and those soaked socks and trying to warm up his feet and he wasn't really upset or crying he was just it was more inside me and knowing oh my goodness like we don't have any money to get him some boots and so just that anguish in my heart mm-hmm. of how do i do this and how do i make this right and and where do i go when there is no money there is no there is no one to ask and so that mm. that despair that little ache in my heart that i couldn't i just felt shame for even having to need to ask and it being in a position like that uh was was awful and i think that mm. those those moments of being in need and just starting out and having a new family and um and then being embarrassed about that and not being able, not knowing where to go or what to do um those that's a whole cloud of um depression and despair that's an anguish that is uh it's it's awful it's an awful feeling yeah i i so appreciate you sharing that and something that stood out to me in what you said was poverty is there's the material part of it but but much of the language that you used there was emotional the shame the embarrassment the, the depression despair. yeah the despair mm-hmm. and to me at least that seems like a different way of talking about poverty than sometimes it can be framed as simply just a material lack of things mhm yeah and of course it's my little son too he's like 12 months older they're 13, 14 months old. And if it was me, if it was just, I could, I could say, well, just suck it up. You know, you can mm. get through this. But because it's, it's him, then it's, it's as this extra dimension of, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. You've been willing to start with a very personal story. We would just love to get to know you a little bit more and, and hear some of your journey, some of your story, if you would be open to sharing with us. Oh, sure. Uh, well, my, um, I guess I started off in ministry when I was uh, about, uh, I started learning how to sing and, and to, to do all that stuff, play the guitar. When I was about 14 or so, my mom was, my mom had gotten like radically saved and I was saved when I was, or I became a Christian when I was eight years old at a Bible camp and I didn't become a Christian because I heard such great stories of Jesus, but rather mm. I was just too scared. I was so scared. I didn't want to go to that place. They kept yelling about hmm. oh, called oh, hell. <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> it's a motivator to an eight-year-old. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yes, I was terrified, and I would, I would, I had the worst couple of months after that. I was just like praying the mm. sinner's prayer, and I was like crying. I was like, God, please don't let you know my brothers go to hell. And I was just, and God was like the eye of Sauron to me, hmm. and mm. uh, and just from Lord of the Rings, it was just yeah. terrible. So that was my eight to sort of, I don't know, 12 or 13-year-old experience. But oh, and then soon after, my what, a librarian uh, in our school, she was uh, she couldn't hardly keep up with me because I was reading so many books. I'd read uh, like a, a couple of novels a night. And I mean, I'm not talking like Dostoevsky. It was like, <laughs> you know, Nancy Drew and the three investigators mm-hmm. and stuff. It was pretty yeah. simple. But she one day she handed me 
she was like, what about this? And she handed me the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, and I'll try it. And so I tucked it under my arm and went home and, and then mm-hmm. was reading it. And I kind of was, I kind of said, you know, I know this story. Like I, as you're going through it and as you're, you know, you end up like crying at the stone table with uh, Susan and Lucy and, and just the mm-hmm. unfolding of how, how C.S. Lewis masterfully contextualized the gospel for children mm-hmm. and so masterfully put Jesus in the form of a lion. And so, mm-hmm. it just, when I was a kid, it just took me so by surprise. And it and that, I think, became a better foundation for my life of Christianity. And I actually talk about that as being a conversion, a better, for sure, a better conversion experience than my Bible camp, mm-hmm. Hellfire and Brimstone one. So, seeing Jesus as Aslan, and it was just beautiful. And I can still, I can still, I listened to the um, the CDs one time I had a long trip and my brother lent me the the CDs of all the whole Chronicles of Narnia and I listened to the whole thing on this, mm. I think it was a 12 hour drive but uh, but every time Aslan showed up I was like in tears I was just and even mm. though he had kind of on this po- he kind of had a doofy voice it was a little bit like they really should have had that Irish guy but anyway they just had for this for Aslan no less my goodness yeah Aslan was like hello you know and it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't great but every it time we showed it, no, I know it totally did it. But, but every time, I think God should always have an Irish accent. I don't know. It's, <laughs> Liam Neeson ruined us by, by being the voice of Aslan now. But the, but every time you showed up, it didn't matter the doofy voice. I I would cry every time, and I was like driving through the Fraser Canyon at one point, crying because of Aslan showing up and being beautiful. And I was like, mm. I shouldn't be driving right now, and what I'm crying, and mm. what am I doing, and. So, so that was that was a really good experience for me of of having that that story put into my hands as as a little kid, and getting to see Jesus in this other light. Because I always say, you know, I I, I honestly say I don't know if I would have stayed a Christian if I uh, if I didn't have that experience of of C.S. Lewis's writings. Because mm. you you can't stay in a relationship with someone who's always mad at you for sure. Mm. And then my mom was uh, on the board for um, the Christian Life Center, which is an inner city ministry. It's still going on in uh, in Prince George, and mm-hmm. they would have there was there was an old hotel that was just the the roughest place, and it was called the Mac after McDonald. And we would be like kitty corner across from from the Mac, and we would set up a little stage and stuff. And and I would be out there singing you know gospel songs, and there's power in the blood and my guitar and and uh, mm. just and learning and sort of and loving it as well and, and my mom would be the one who would speak and and uh mm. and yeah i was just a teenager figuring that out we would go to rallies and there's a lot of native rallies up in the north and the music mm. is so much fun oh my goodness mm. the guys are just like so some of them are like they can like play like johnny be good kind of stuff and mm-hmm. and then the blues and and gospel blues and it just was so much fun it was almost like going to a music festival but it was all gospel Sounds music like so mm-hmm. yeah it was tons of fun and you never know the preachers would be soft and sweet or they would be yelly or whatever but it was always <laughs> it was always interesting and yeah that's how i that was kind of my start as a as a christian so well thank you so much for sharing and Mm-hmm. Your your love of music is so clear in just even in that little bit that you shared with us. So thank you for that. I, I want to maybe not change the subject, but kind of come back to our conversation on poverty for a moment here. And 
you know, perhaps to some Canadians, uh, maybe even to some of our listeners, there can be a, a lack of information or a lack of understanding about kind of the experience of life for Indigenous people who find themselves in Canada today. And I'm wondering if you if you could help us understand how is it that Indigenous people in Canada are are far more likely to experience material poverty um, than those who are who are non-Indigenous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's um, the short answer is systemic racism. I mean, that's just from the very beginning we have, uh, and it's all, it's a lot of Christian ties as well. The very, the, um, the settlers, the um, explorers, they kind of came over, explorers slash pirates, because I watched a documentary on Netflix about pirates and it was like, oh my goodness, they sometimes changed hats and were like hired by the crown to go exploring and it was like, oh crap. Mm-hmm. So, the um, when those folks came over, they had a mandate from the crown, from the monarchs in Europe, and that was called the, the Doctrine of Discovery. And it's also called the Christian Doctrine of Discovery. That's mm-hmm. actually the, the proper term. And what that was, what that said was, if when you find land and you don't find, if you don't find a recognized monarch, then consider the land terra nullius, which means the land is empty. And so then they, of course, you know, Christopher Columbus came over and and everybody then, in their worldview, everybody then, and everybody strangely now, they sort of have this idea that Jesus stepped off of the boat just after Christopher Columbus. It's like mm-hmm. Columbus, the holy hero, brought yeah. Jesus and brought salvation and all of that stuff. Whereas Eugene Peterson in a pastoral class at uh, Regent College he said, "When you when you walk into a room, be be a little bit be humble." He said, "Just you know, walk into a hospital room or something." He said, "Don't go expecting to bring God there. Go expecting to see what God has been up to before you got there." Mm-hmm. And that posture mm-hmm. would have been helpful back in 1492. It certainly would have changed the course of history, wouldn't it? Yes, and so that sort of stance. And the, oh, and then when of course they found Native people already living here and already having all of these, you know, political systems and everything that we had set up here. But they they assumed that theirs was better, very ethnocentric. So, and one of the popes had this, uh, well, there was, I guess the pope was involved, but there were debates as to whether or not Indigenous people were were human or not, or had a soul or not. That was the debate, whether we had a soul or not. And so the idea was, if we did have a soul, then they were obligated to send missionaries. But if we didn't have a soul, then they could just exterminate us. And in Australia, just up until within the last 20 years or so, they were under the category of flora and fauna. And so, Oh my goodness. Yeah, so this whole this whole attitude towards Native people was just seeped in racism, and and it's just as stark as that. Anyway, one of the popes decided that we did have a soul, so then they were obligated to send missionaries, so then we wouldn't be exterminated by, you know, whatever. But then became the second way of, of eradication, and that was through a weaponized gospel. And we've been given... A colonized version of the gospel at best, and a weaponized version of the gospel at worst. And mm. we've seen very specifically in the residential schools that the government did not have a policy of education, but rather a policy of assimilation. And so, and of course, they won that court case, and so that's how we know that that's. And they decolonized Canada, the residential school survivors. Now everybody in Canada knows about the residential schools, and. 
Uh, my mom went to Le Jack Residential School, and and then we, of course, from the TRC, we have we know all of the stories of the things, the terrible things that happened there. But one of the things that people don't realize, and this is a really huge justice issue, is that because they didn't have a policy of assimilation or of education, but rather assimilation. The kids weren't taught how you are taught in a school, in a regular school. The way that you have gone to school, your experience or the white Canadian experience of going to school is completely the opposite of an Indigenous person's experience in school. And even um, myself, when I was, I think, 17 and coming up to graduation, my principal came up to me and, and I was like smart enough and whatever and did my work okay. But he just kind of looked at my, I wasn't interested in school and I wasn't, uh, if I had a good teacher, I really applied myself. But otherwise, I just kind of like rather, you know, goof off with my friends. But the principal said to me when, when we were coming to the graduation and stuff, he goes, you're not going to go to college, right? Wow. <laughs> and I was wow. like, I was like, well, yeah, well, you know, I don't want to go to college. What the heck? And it just sort of like, but that, that complete lack of whatever. Anyway, so, and then I asked my mom one time, I was like, mom, you were really smart. Like, did they, did anybody ever tell you, hey, you should go to college? And she just looked at me and the look on her face told me the answer. And my little mm-hmm. brother took some studies. He was studying um, the NITEP program out at UBC, the uh, indigenous teachers program and he was learning all about the residential schools and one of the things that they said there was they essentially taught the indigenous students how to be servants so the boys were taught to be laborers and they would be working in the field and the girls would be taught sewing and cleaning and uh, and all of that wow. and that is definitely a fact you hear that yeah. um, that the kids said we were basically their little slaves and it was really brutal anyway so people say, oh, but that was years ago. That was, you know, my mom passed away last year at 72, age 72. And they're like, that's when she was little. Like, mm-hmm. those things don't happen today, right? But I can tell you that I sat as a counselor for my, for Natlewaten as a, in a political role, like chief and council is like city council, right? And sitting in that situation as a counselor and talking to industry and government, and they wanted to put a, I think it was a transmission line through our land or something. So they had to talk to us and get our and do consultation and get consent. So because of Tilcoteen decision, and we were sitting there and they said, okay, as a part of our negotiation, if you let us do this, we're going to give you you know this this this, and also we promise to hire fifty uh, percent of our laborers will be from your community. And uh, communities, because there was a few of us indigenous communities there at the table. And uh, I remember after hearing that a couple of times, I was like, wait a second. Like, why are they only hiring us as laborers? Like, what the mm-hmm. heck? Oh, they, and they said, we will train and hire, you know, people from your community. And so I finally put my hand up one day and I was like, why aren't you hiring us to be your engineers, your environmental specialists, your CEO? Like, why can't mm-hmm. we have, I want your job. You know, right. <laughs> and but that they just set the bar so low, and it goes way back to the yeah. the founding of Canada and the systemic racism that was poured into the foundation, and it's really unfortunate. And <clears throat> you know, one of the things that I'm so grateful for the residential school survivors who took Canada to court, and for years and years and years they didn't give up because they started breaking up that foundation of, of racism, mm-hmm. and and everybody who 
who learned about the residential schools, every most most Canadians, I can't say all because some of them still feel like it's a good idea and we should do that again. But majority of people say this is horrific. We couldn't we mm-hmm. how did this happen? How did we not know about this for so many mm-hmm. years? And let's mm-hmm. never let this happen again. And so that part of people are always really afraid of the word decolonization. And I just say decolonization just means hearing another story and then changing your mm-hmm. mind. It it just it's just like we've been been decolonized a lot because we now every Canadian knows the, the story and the history of the residential schools, so it's not something to, that's really scary. But the justice issues are really important. Like another thing that we did in our community was I learned about a lot of the industry that's that was going on without Indigenous consent on our land <clears throat> that has completely changed the landscape. Once there was a mountain. Well, the, the elders say, well, I used to look out my window and see the mountain, and now the mountain is gone because of a 60-year-old mine. And we would, wow. we would have caribou. We have, in, one of our, in our communities, we have the potlatch system. That's our way. And, um, and there's one of our clans is called the caribou clan, but there's no caribou in our, in our area. So this goes back like a lot of years, and some people say, "Why?" You know, I think it was a non-Native person who said, why do you guys have a caribou clan when there's no caribou around here? And we're like, well, there there were, and there's now no um, Chinook. I think the Chinook have been decimated their their populations, and it's all been because of industry. And so, mm-hmm. when you see those kind of things, the, you know, the, the the richest people in the land, everybody knows this. The richest people in the in the land are the landowners. Those are the folks who have the money. But for Indigenous mm-hmm. people, we uh, we have traditional territories. How come we have this traditional territories? And yet we are, uh, some of our water, like there's about 26 First Nations communities in Canada, I think, that have like, they don't have uh, drinking water. They have to go, one of them in Pekantikum, you have to go into the city and, and draw from a well and bring that back to your house. Like every day you have to do that. And you know, Cheryl, when I heard about the situation with not having clean water, I was absolutely astounded. How can that be happening in Canada today? That's just shocking to me. Yeah, it, it's unbelievable. And so some of these things, like like we still live off the land. I've got a my cousin Serena. She'll she'll she's like about five foot one, and she'll go and bring down a moose every year, you know. And she's mm. and she's when we have a good salmon run. This last year we had to. There was a um, an avalanche in the canyon that mm. in Big Bar a couple of years ago, I think, and it stopped the salmon run. So we had this year we had to let them all go through. But mm. normally on a good on a good year, my cousin Serena will pull out like almost a thousand salmon out of that river just by herself wow. with wow. her fishing rod and and then clean those and can them or smoke them in our smokehouses. And then she'll give them out to elders, or she'll she stocks up her food for the year, and and uh, and I she'll give me fish like all the time. She's so generous, and there's and there's and she's just one person in our community. There's lots of people fishing during the salmon run. So we we live off the land, but <clears throat> when the land is sick and when the water is sick, then it it changes everything. And some of these places where I remember people saying about. At Wapiskat, when all of that stuff was happening just a few years ago, people would actually say to me, "Why can't they just like move to Toronto? 
move they should just move them all to Toronto but they don't understand the connection to land that we have been mm. on the land time immemorial that because we say we've been on the land time immemorial that means that we've and we always go home to be buried so that means that the mm. land is literally like science scientifically made up of my ancestors not layers mm. that very land is is so ancient and so we're so connected to the land so it's not an option for us to leave there's some real justice issues that need to be resolved and and need to be really carefully thought about in Canada and i th- and i know that there's been a trajectory of well it's been a constant battle to to be honest and some of the things one of my elders said the only reason that we are where we are today with all of the kind of good things happening for native people it's because of the courts it's because we had to mm-hmm. take the government to court again and again and again and there's like uh Delgamuch decision there's the Haida decision there's um the Tilkotin decision which and all of these things and and it makes me sad it really makes me sad that all of these things it's still happening today, you know, there's still, um, the government just can't do the right thing. And we saw mm-hmm. in Halifax even, or I, th- I think it was Halifax, East Coast someplace, where the Mi'kma'ki fishermen were having mm-hmm. all kinds of trouble. And it was, I heard that there was some RCMP that were even involved in making things worse for, and, and they were breaking treaties with the Mi'kmaq. And I looked, I, I did just read not very much, but just read a little bit about that, and I found out that the name of the treaty that they were breaking by doing all of these terrible things to Mi'kma'ki fishermen, what, the treaty was called the Peace and Friendship Treaty. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's the treaty you want to break? Like, oh my goodness. Wow, so we're irony. we're still doing these things today. We're still having to fight constantly just to exist Some in some cases. And, and, that's, and it's exo- ex- exhausting. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, Lynn, I, but I, th- I think that there's, as I was saying, that trajectory, there's been a consistent, sometimes microscopic trajectory of change in the right direction. And it's been because mm-hmm. of a Herculean effort on behalf of Indigenous elders and leaders, uh, hereditary and elected leaders, to just really bring change. And then people and good folks, good Canadians who, who like I said, are decolonized a bit you know you hear about the residential school mm-hmm. and say oh god never again and and then mm-hmm. they say oh what about the land okay what do we do and so that trajectory is changing all the time and it mm-hmm. gives me a lot of hope that a lot of young people now they're learning about the residential schools in canada they're learning about things that we never learned when i was a kid mm-hmm. so that that gives me a lot of hope but it's still it's mm-hmm. it's a bit of a uphill battle most days uh one of my favorite Mm -hmm. examples is when we talk about sort of injustice in canada and people people canadians just don't know there's so many you know we know about the residential school and and, but there's still we have still so much to tell you even about the residential school we still you still Mm -hmm. don't know everything uh i remember going to ottawa with the pastors group and we came across the statue commemorating when women in canada were given the right to vote in 1929 and I looked at that, and everybody was like, "Wow, this is great, you know, and this is isn't it wonderful and And I was like, "Hey, where's the statue for uh you know for native people?" And they were like, "What?" Mm. And I said, "Well, we weren't allowed to vote until nineteen sixty nineteen sixty yeah and and like that's just not anywhere that's just not written anywhere. You have to go, you have to take indigenous studies." 
And there are free courses mm. at universities across Canada. I think Edmonton, Calgary, Regina. There's there's got to be more as well. But those that's where you learn that stuff. And that's one of my huge recommendations to people is, you mm. know, read Indigenous authors, listen to Indigenous speakers, and, and take those courses. So then you can learn stuff like that. Because, oh, and we weren't allowed to hire a lawyer, I think. Or even go to court or whatever until 1955. So since then, and wow. that you know, somebody once asked, "Why are you guys always in court?" And it was like, "Because we weren't allowed to until 1955. Yeah. That's not that mm. long ago." So we have a we no, have a, we have a lot of justice to catch up on. And there's with Indigenous people. Well, there's there's kind of two models of sort of looking at poverty. There's two models that you kind of see in structures in organizations across Canada. And one is a charity model, and the other is a justice model. And I think most of the times when you see inner city uh, missions, they tend to be just immediate need, let's get this. And, and, and there's, there's a huge need for that. There's a huge need to just, let's just get this plate of food into this hungry belly, you know, this person. And that's so, and, and it's very important. But they, we need to move, I think, all of our institutions from not just a singular focus of charity, but to also include justice. Because if we stick with the charity model, then we're almost like perpetuating our own jobs. We're, we're you know, mm. it's like the lifetime missionary. It's like, no, the missionary's job is not to just go and be there, missionary in that place for for 40 years, you're supposed to like raise up leaders, raise up indigenous leaders so that the gospel can grow. You know, you plant the seeds so that the gospel can grow indigenously. Mm-hmm. And that's also, that's a concept of missiology, of contextualization. And that's never really happened in Canada. It's always been those seeds of colonization. I always say we weren't given mm-hmm. a slave version of the Bible, but we were given a colonized version. They wrote the justice right mm-hmm. out of the Bible. They, they, so we have to decolonize the Bible as well for our people. Mm-hmm. So, Cheryl, in, in there you mentioned the value, just the massive importance of learning. And for those who want to learn more, you know, it's a, such a, a key value of ours here at the Ending Poverty Together podcast is, you know, we want to share knowledge. We want to share resources as much as possible. So, you know, you've already been so helpful in laying out some of that there's some free courses out there. I'm, I'm wondering if you could recommend other, other resources, books, learning experiences, other things that people who want to learn more things that they can look into. Oh, for sure, yes. I don't usually do this and plug my own stuff, but I have a book out called Introduction to First Nations Ministry, and it's something that I did for mm. um, for my doctorate of ministry project. And so it's got some good things in there. It's a little bit, it, they sort of wrote my voice out of it, because, you know, when I say I was in Notley, you know, at my grandpa's house by the river, they would say, the mm. author was, uh, to, you know, and it was like, oh, shush. But it's it's got some good things in there. Uh, it was written for the academy, of course. So anyway, Cheryl, if I can just if I can just jump in, I'm actually I'm reading it right now. Oh, cool! And it's extremely helpful. Oh, it's, good. I, I would highly recommend it. And we will actually put all the resources that you recommend. We'll actually put them on the fhcanada.org slash podcast site. There'll be a link there so that people can access that. So. Oh, good. And I, I kind of boiled that book down into uh, like a kid's book as well. And so we have mm. The Honor Drum, oh. which is uh, also available on Amazon. 
and it's uh, it's just got all of these great principles. It could be used as a as a school curriculum, like any school would would uh, enjoy it. But it's also got hmm. you know talk about the creator in there because that's from our perspective. We that's part of our culture. This talk is starting mm-hmm. everything with. You know, talking about the Creator, <clears throat> our prayer, honoring the Creator. So, but some other books mm. that I think Thomas King is really great. Uh, the Inconvenient Indian is probably one of the great books, and and mm. a lot of people don't understand. Like he's got this wry sense of humor; he's just brilliant, and that's that's always a great thing about native writing is that it's often going to have some humor in it. Well, if the title's any indication, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's he's so great. And there's um, Wab Canoe has a book out. I have a couple of Christian authors. That one is the late Dr. Richard Twist. He's Lakota Sakanju, and he. Oh, I've got these crows out my window. Can you hear them? Yeah, oh, you know, like people. I got to close my window. People always think, "Oh, yeah, native people," and then they think about Pocahontas and talking to animals. And I'm like, "But the crows! Like sometimes they're just jerks." It's whenever I'm on my phone or I'm on a like I'll be on a Zoom. I was teaching a church on a Zoom, and then the crows just went crazy outside, and they were like, they were like, oh, that's so sweet. And I was like, no, no, it's not. They're just annoying. <laughs> they're, they're jerks. They're a bunch of jerks. <laughs> yeah. so, so anyway, the uh, uh, Richard Twist is uh, he's got a book called One Church, Many Tribes, and he talks about. Why is it that Native people have to always ask? Why, you know, they, we have, like, and I grew up sort of wondering this question. And when somebody, I heard, uh, you know, him saying, articulating these questions, then I would be like, oh my goodness, that was my experience in my whole life. And it was like, mm-hmm. it, and the question is, can I be Native and Christian at the same time? Wow. Because we mm-hmm. are, you know, and then that's one other thing that was like, goes way back to the early days where it was, you know, the European uh, ethnocentric Europeans thought that everything that they had that they had and did and believed was so perfect, and that ours was just basically stupid, first of all, and ridiculous, mm. and also evil. And so those those mm. are the two ways that we've been portrayed as indigenous people for hundreds of years is either as dumb or scary. And the and you still mm. see it in the media today. You'll still see that inkling of that trace of that in it, the reasoning behind that. I've I've assumed. Is that if we're portrayed as dumb, then we're just—they're just like, well, they're not using the land. There's no—they don't have any clue about progress and mm. you know about mm. economy and making money. And it's like, uh, so we should just take the land from them because they don't—they don't—they don't need it. And then also, if we're mm. scary um, and like militant or you know whatever, uh, defending the lands as you've seen in Oka or as you see in Wet'suwet'en. Uh, then, when we're scary, then it can become, well, these people are bad, and they just don't deserve the land, so we can take the land. So, those are kind of the two, yeah, the two ways we've been portrayed. And then, and also for the Christian, it's it was an evil, like, that all of our stuff is evil. Don't use a drum because it's going to bring an evil spirit. Don't wear native earrings because it's going to, it's got an evil spirit. And those are things that I heard when I was growing up. Those are things that were put mm-hmm. onto me telling making me feel like i was not only a second class citizen but that god couldn't really love me because i was native like those are mm-hmm. those are christian and that's a that's a, a christian idea that's still out there unfortunately so richard does a great job wow. of breaking some of that down and then i've got a another friend named casey church and he's a potawatomi 
and he is he wrote a book called I think it's called Holy yeah it's called Holy Smoke and it talks about some of our hmm. ceremonies and he's he just does a beautiful job of uh, talking about ceremony yeah, he's a, and he's a pipe carrier mm. and a and a and a graduate from uh, Fuller Seminary and so just mm. yeah powerful people you know Cheryl I have felt through our time together today like every second sentence is another whole podcast yeah. and would be another opportunity to unpack and to explore. But I just, I can't thank you enough for your willingness to come and to give us some really important pieces that we can now move forward and do some exploration and increase our understanding because we just, we have so much to learn. And I will, I will just say this before we say goodbye that, um, yeah, Cheryl, thank you so much for your perspective, sharing such important history. And I truly feel very filled up by this conversation. I feel like I've, I've learned so much from you and I'm just so, so grateful um, for your willingness to share and your willingness to help us and to help so many others just understand more and to see the the beauty and the history of uh, Indigenous people. And so I'm just really, really appreciative of your time today. And I just want to say thank you again for being here. Well, thanks for your good questions and for the conversation. I appreciate you guys talking about these issues. Mm. Well, Cheryl, I just, I would say the one thing that I'm taking away from today, one of the things I'm taking away mm -hmm. from today is the complexity yeah. of the Indigenous experience in Canada. And I really value that you would take time to start right at the beginning and to walk us through because I think so often we don't see the connection. We just see the symptom, but we don't see the root causes. And so thank you for doing that today. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. No worries. My pleasure. And to our listeners, to explore what your next steps could be or to find out more about Dr. Cheryl Bear and what other Canadians are doing about poverty, we encourage you to start by checking out fhcanada.org resources.